the end of one century and the beginning of another century is always a time for people to take stock of themselves, both of where they have been and where they are going. And we, of course, can see this around us today as we begin our rendezvous with destiny in the 21st century uh, in the shadow of the events of September 11th and the Iraqi war, uh, of course. And I think most of you are old enough to recall that when we entered the 21st century, uh, when we moved from the 20th to the 21st century, you know, Y2K, uh, we were being bombarded with retrospectives and analyses of the 20th century, the century we were leaving behind. You might remember the books and the special issues of the magazines, the 100 most important people of 20th century. Now you see where I get my questions from. The 100 most important events of the 20th century. The 100 greatest inventions of the 20th century. The 100 worst songs of the 20th century. Plenty of candidates there. Okay, you get the idea. Now, in addition to looking to the past, Americans, of course, look to the future. They're a very future-oriented people. As they did so, they might imagine a nation where computers performed every function known to man, or a society, perhaps, where the United States continues its domination of the world in political and economic and cultural life. Or perhaps they could imagine, perhaps most far-fetched of all, a nation uh, with no ethnic or racial or class divisions. So ends of centuries, whether it's the end of the 19th century or the end of the 20th century, are times of taking stock uh, and gingerly made predictions of cautious hope, loud pride, and quiet fear. This was America as the 20th century ended. And it also was America, as we turn to our subject in this course, at the end of the 19th century. Just as they did at the end of the 20th century, Americans in 1900, the 20th century began, looked back on a century of change and forward to a future of possibility and uncertainty. Now, when Americans look back, let's say, in 1896, when this course begins, when they look backwards, what did they see? Well, Geographically, they saw a country that had grown from 13 states hugging the Atlantic coast in the 1790s to one that stretched ocean to ocean, one that, except for Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, and, of course, Alaska and Hawaii, looked geographically like the nation we know today. They also could see a nation that in the 1700s, in the 18th century, was a primarily rural, almost pastoral place with a few small cities, but dominated by the countryside and by the countryside's values. They had seen this nation turn by the 1890s into a nation of teeming, growing cities. Cities which, moreover, had come to dominate the nation. 
not let, not yet population-wise domination. It would not be until the 1920s that more Americans lived in cities than in rural areas, but dominant culturally and dominant economically. By the 1890s, the American city was where the action was, for better or for worse, where the great fortunes were made, where the latest trends in fashion, in music, and in literature were, where the great newspapers were, where people who wanted to be somebody, to make something of themselves, where they went. By the 1890s, cities were a permanent, dominated, dominating fixture on the American social, cultural, and political landscape. And what's more, the people who inhabited those cities were very different from those who had lived in them at the beginning of the 19th century in the early 1800s. American cities had changed during the 19th century from largely Protestant-based people who had come uh, from England uh, uh, to Catholic and, in some cases, Jewish by the 1890s. Many cities, especially eastern cities, were now more than 50% non-Protestant. And the reason for this was the great wave of immigration from eastern and southern Europe that had begun in the 1870s and continued through the 1880s, the 1890s, and beyond. And we'll have more to say about this when we talk about immigration restriction. A great crescendo of human beings from Poland, from Russia, from Italy, millions a year. And even before this wave of immigration, had come the Irish and German Catholic immigrants of the 1840s and 1850s, which changed the face of the American city and constituted a challenge to continued Protestant domination of the cities, a challenge that would have political and social and cultural ramifications well into the 20th century. Now, economically, Americans saw a country in 1896 that in 1800, the beginning of the 19th century, uh, uh, the country that was, despite its political independence from Great Britain, still very reliant on Great Britain for manufactured goods, goods which it could not produce itself. America, in many ways, in 1800, was a colony of Great Britain, in all but name. Obviously, it had won the War of Independence, so it was politically independent, but economically, it was a colony of Great Britain, dependent on the old mother country for capital, meaning for money, finance, for technological innovation, for trade. But throughout the, or during the 19th century, Americans had seen their country grow into an industrial colossus producer of its own manufactured goods, shipping them both to its own large or immense internal American market, in other words, shipping to Americans, and also to the world. By 1896, America was no longer colonized, but a colonizer. It was a creditor nation, a lender, a capitalizer. Other countries owed America money. And America was now a leader in the single most important industrial product of 
the 19th century, which is or was, take a guess, what's the most important industrial product of the 19th century? What? Now that's that. That I would say would be would be the uh, uh, would be the 18th century most important invention of the 18th century would be the cotton gin. But I thought I heard it. Steel, steel, steel is correct. Steel is the product from which every other aspect of the American economy flowed. Whether it was railroads, you know, just think about it. it railroads, skyscrapers, shipbuilding agriculture, you know, steel plows, even the industry that would prove to be the most important in the coming 20th century in America. And what industry do you think that was? 20th century. Related, related. Automobiles. Automobiles. Okay, that's the 20th century. By 1896, America is a nation that had harnessed its unparalleled natural resources. And remember, America is blessed naturally. You know, there's a saying in life, it's better to be lucky than to be good. Uh, America has tremendous natural resources. Not so much oil, but uh, a lot of other things. Uh, harnessed its natural resources to its burgeoning manufacturing capacity to become the industrial leader of the world. Now, politically, Americans had also seen a great century of change. A change during the 19th century from a society that is hierarchical and deferential, led by a small group of elites. Think about the founding fathers, Jefferson and Washington and Madison. All these founding fathers are from this elite class, this deferential class. But during the 19th century, America had transformed itself into, by the end of the 19th century, a mass democracy, which, uh, at least for white males, there was political equality. All white males could vote. The adoption of universal white male suffrage by the various states in the 1820s and 1830s had helped create a society in which, by the 1890s, who one's father was mattered less than at any other previous time in American history in terms of attaining uh, elective office. Andrew Jackson in the 1820s and 1830s, and of course Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s, had been notable as self-made men who achieved high political office, uh, uh, worked their way up from log cabins, from subsistence, but by the 1890s, the phenomenon of the self-made man in American politics is no longer really a phenomenon, but a relatively commonplace occurrence. And Americans, looking backward from the, 18, from the vantage point of the 1890s, from 1896, could also see, of course, that the nation had fought a civil war. By far the most cataclysmic single event in American history, in large measure, to establish the principle of individual human equality. The first time you will hear that word, it will not be the last. The Declaration of Independence, of course, had originally stated this principle, but it had taken over 600,000 American lives between 1861 and 1865 to make equality an actuality in the life of the nation by 1896. Or had it? 
because as Americans looked forward from the vantage point of 1896 to a new century, they saw a nation that in many ways was still grossly unequal and in which the tension between the idea of equality and the idea of liberty, and sometimes I'll use the word freedom interchangeably with, with liberty, the tension between equality and freedom was an ongoing theme in American life. Now, America in 1896 was a nation that was fraught with inequality. There was economic equality, uh, inequality, I'm sorry, fraught with inequality, economic inequality. The average unskilled factory worker in the United States in 1896 earned about $450 a year, $450 a year. The manager of that factory made about 10 times that, about $4,500 a year. The owner of that factory made about 1000 and if he was also a financier like John D. Rockefeller, he may have made way more than 1,000 times what that average factory uh, worker made. Moreover, the unskilled factory worker at the turn of the century, at the end of the 19th century, was basically fixed in his position for life. He wasn't going anywhere. Neither were his kids. Now, was such a society an equal one? Well, viewing it in strictly economic terms, it was very difficult to say that it was. There was also racial inequality in the United States at the turn of the century. By 1900, virtually every state in the South had disenfranchised blacks. Disenfranchised, we all know what that means, right? Can't vote. Of course, in America, if you can't vote, you have no power. By 1900, virtually every southern state uh, had legally segregated blacks. And by 1900, uh, debt-ridden black sharecroppers who owned no land were literally tied to the land like serfs. In other words, southern agricultural society around 1900 resembled what it might look like in feudal times. In other words, the year 900. In the North, although blacks could vote, uh, their lives were only marginally better. There was de facto or residential segregation, no legal segregation, but uh, uh, a generally agreed on residential segregation. Blacks could not buy homes or live in most areas of American cities. Blacks were also being squeezed out of skilled trades, which would have been a conduit into the middle class. And on the other end, they were barred largely from industrial jobs. They could only work when they worked in industry as strike breakers, which, of course, uh, hurt relations between blacks and white workers. Now, there was also in America at the end of the 19th century gender inequality. Women could not vote on the federal level. In many states, married women could not own property on their own. It only went through their husbands. Now, women were being treated unequally at this time, largely because of the philosophy of what we know as Victorianism. Has anybody heard the word uh, Victorianism? Anybody ever heard Victorianism? Who was Victoria? She was the Queen of England. She was the Queen of England around this time, from the 1830s until the, basically the turn of the 20th century. And 
Victorianism as a philosophy is peculiar to the 19th and early part of the 20th century, although there are still vestiges of it today. And as I describe it, I think you'll see where I'm going. Under the philosophy of Victorianism, it was presumed that women needed to be protected. And where would they be protected? They would be protected in the home. Victorianism uh, uh, put forth the idea of what we call separate spheres. Separate, separate spheres for men and for women. For men, the sphere was work outside the home. For women, the sphere was the home where they would be protected and where they would not leave. In the home, women were to be in charge under the philosophy of Victorianism of moral education uh, 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 for the children largely. That, that was their role. Women were viewed as the gentler sex under the philosophy of Victorianism. And speaking of sex, Victorian women were considered to be sexually repressed and almost uh, frigid and, 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 and uh, uh, incapable of experiencing passion the way men could. For these reasons, most men in America in 1900 felt that it was natural that women would be trapped in the protected home and not allowed to vote, for example. So, Americans at the turn of the 20th century lived in a society that was filled with economic inequality, with racial inequality, and with gender inequality. And even in the sense of the denial of suffrage uh, to women and black disenfranchisement, also a degree of political inequality. And it's interesting that many Americans justified this inequality on the grounds of preserving freedom, preserving liberty. Employers, for example, fought government attempts to legislate better working conditions and limits on workers' hours by claiming that under the Constitution of the United States, especially the 14th Amendment, which prohibits the taking of property without due process of law, that they, the employers, had the freedom, the liberty, to run their businesses as they pleased and that the liberty of both workers and employers to freely sign labor contracts could not be interfered with, even if the party to those labor contracts were inherently unequal. Obviously, workers had a lot less power at this point uh, than employers. Also, northern factory owners argued that they had the liberty the freedom to deny industrial jobs to African Americans because they could run their property as they saw fit. And white workers, white union members, also claim the liberty, the freedom to exclude blacks from their unions and their trade associations, again, citing liberty of free association. We associate with whoever we want to. Southerners justified segregation as freedom of association. No one can tell me who I am to associate with. 
the infamous Plessy versus Ferguson decision of 1896, which established the separate but equal philosophy which ruled until the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision, was based, the legal decision itself was based on this idea of freedom of association. Whites do not have to ride in the same railroad cars or streetcars as blacks if they don't want to, because that is freedom, again that word, of association. And even men generally, white and black, justified disenfranchising women and keeping them in an unequal status within the home on the theory uh, of their liberty to be men, which meant having a dominant role in both the home and society at large. Thus, as Americans look to the new 20th century, they could see the tensions between the idea of freedom and the idea of equality. And, in fact, that tension between freedom and equality would define that century, what we call the 20th century, the American century. America was an equal society. But how equal? Was equality an absolute, literal equality? Or just equal opportunity to become unequal? And... What was equal opportunity anyway? Was it political equality, that alone, social equality, liberty of association, economic equality? What was it? No answers. Also, America was a society based on individual liberty, individual freedom. But how much? Could anyone or anything, meaning the federal government, tell someone what to do with his property, his business, his land, his life? Or, in other words, what happens when the two greatest American values of all, freedom and equality, collide and even contradict? Well, America and Americans would spend the entire 20th century trying to sort these questions out. And this course, to a large extent, is the story of the attempts by Americans to sort these questions out. Now, I think there are a few students in the room, maybe one or two, uh, who took my History 131 course, uh, America in the 19th Century, Republic to Nation. And those of you who were in that class may well be thinking to yourself, wait a second, didn't Poder say the same thing on the first day of that class? Is he trying to avoid doing any work in this class, pawning off the same organizing principles and ideas on us again? He just doesn't want to work very hard this time around? Well, the answers to those questions are yes and no. Yes, I did define the 19th century in America in terms of the freedom versus equality tension. So those of you who were in that class did hear it before. But no, I am not trying to pull a fast one or have an easy term because I think that all of American history from the founding fathers on can be defined by these often contradictory ideas of freedom and equality, these very simply stated but very difficult to define words of freedom and equality. That is what America and American history, at least in my view, is all about. And to give you a sneak preview of the way this course will end, 
the tension between freedom and equality is never resolved because that is what America and American history is about as well. And during this course, we will be spending a lot of time with these two very elusive words. And one tip uh, uh, on getting the most out of the course is to be, to be thinking about them even when we are not talking about them specifically. Because rest assured, freedom and equality are always there, sometimes front and center, sometimes beneath the surface, but rest assured, they are always there. And I'll talk about immigrants and workers and women in the America of the early 20th century on Friday.